0: Welcome to Wild Connection, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Verdolin, but you can just call me Dr. Jen. I'm a scientist and author that studies animal behavior. I'm passionate about animals, and I love helping people reconnect with nature to live better lives. This podcast is about you, other animals, and how we are connected in this crazy, wild thing called life. You can get the show notes and more on my website, jenniferverdalen.com. If you like my show, please subscribe to it so you never have to miss an episode. Hey everybody, welcome back to a new episode of Wild Connection. You may have noticed there was a short break and that's because I had some traveling to do. I also have some big news that's going to impact the podcast. In about two months, I will be going to Uganda to a place called Windy Impenetrable Forest, and I'm hoping to bring you new episodes from there. That, of course, depends on whether or not people in the communities are willing to share their stories and experiences, and if they do, then you'll get to hear them. So please support the podcast and spread the word if you're enjoying it. This week's guest is pretty special. Brooke Williams has spent the last 30 years advocating for wilderness. He's the author of four books, including Half-Lives, Reconciling Work, and Wilderness. When he's not writing books, he's teaching courses and spending time in the desert in Utah, where he lives. You may think the desert has no seasons, but Brooke will be quick to tell you this isn't true, and that if you slow down enough, you can witness the changing tides out in the desert. At the same time, those tides are changing. There's more heat, more fire, more floods. I connected with Brooke to talk about his latest book, Mary Jane Wilde, Two Walks and a Rant. And as you will hear, he is inviting you into his experience. All right, everybody. I am so excited to welcome author Brooke Williams. He's here to talk about his new book Mary Jane Wilde, Two Walks and a Rant, and this was this book was actually a finalist for the Prism Prize in Climate Literature. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really uh, excited to talk to you, Jennifer.
0: Me too. And you know, we've we've uh, been trying to have this conversation for a while, and so I'm really I'm really happy that our, our we were able to connect. And I always love talking to fellow authors. Uh, so I write, and you've written several books. Um, this is your latest book. And I'm I'm always curious, kind of what is the most challenging part of the, the writing process for you?
1: Oh, uh, for me, it's the idea that this this story, whatever it is I'm that's pursuing me. Is never static, it's always changing. And um, I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes I'll write a draft. And then when it comes time to editing it, I'll go back and realize that it just doesn't have any juice for me. It has no power. And I'll realize that the story has shifted, that the details may be the same, but the story is different. The story is current. And it's always me trying to catch up with the story. And, as a result, these books take me forever to write. So that's my biggest challenge.
0: yeah, well, I can appreciate that i I find that sometimes I feel overwhelmed with the story, and you know, one of the similarities we share is that at least with this book, it, it's pretty autobiographical is that is that true for all of your books?
1: I'd say so. Um, I often think about wanting to find a story that just grabs me like I think of the book um Kevin Fedarko's book The Emerald Mile I don't know if you know that book but it's the story of this world record speed attempt through the Grand Canyon which is you know an event that to many is kind of insignificant but the way he braids all the details of the history of the Grand Canyon, of the history of river, river running in the Grand Canyon, of the history of just the, the, the natural history of the Grand Canyon. I just love that idea of nonfiction, how that that works. And I, I've yet to really find that kind of a story that grabs me. But um, other than that, most of mine is autobiographical. And um, now that you mention it, I think that I, you know, I would like to kind of branch out from that.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting is that and, and when I think about the the style of of sort of of what you share in your in your book, Mary Jane Wilde, is is really your perspective, your experience, you know, your musings about nature, about climate change, about the politics that are happening at the time, as well as sort of your um your feeling about where you are. And and before we talk about where the setting is for Mary Jane Wilde and what's special about it, I'm really wondering how do you decide how much to share of yourself in in this book and in other books?
1: That's a really good question. Um, My wife, Carrie Tempest-Williams, is a writer too, and I've learned a lot from her. Um, She talks about writing from the personal perspective, um, that what is the most personal is the most universal, but then there's a difference between what is personal and what is private. So that line, um, is a, is a difficult one to know when you're crossing it and when you're not, I think because when you're writing, I, maybe you experienced this too, you're not really writing for the audience. Yeah. In fact, this, this, this book in particular, before, um, there were two walks and after the first walk, what I wrote was totally personal and hadn't, I had no intention of publishing anywhere. So that was, that was different than the second one after I had, you know, been given the the book contract. So it's, it's a difficult, it's difficult to know. And I think sometimes, um, you get a sense, like a little cringe in your body, when you might have crossed that line between personal and private. Um, and other times that wall is so thick and high that you'll never cross it. Um, and I think we've all read books where that line gets crossed and is very uncomfortable. And um, so I don't know, I think it's just an instinct. And I think it helps to have people read your work and tell you. Um, Most of the time I get told not that I've crossed the the line between personal and private, but that I haven't been personal enough. And I haven't gone deeply enough that there there's uh, that I've written into um, a shadow that I've been afraid of or something. Yeah. Um, I think those are the those are the kind of places that where the writing really gets good, too, is when you're like, oh, is this. Is this too far? Is this too much? Um, what am I exposing and what am I afraid of? Um those kind of questions I think add to um add to the quality of writing. Yeah, that
0: that really, you know, that really strikes a chord with me because um my second book, I I, you know, I it was all about family dynamics and I, I really wasn't interested in sort of dumping my family history right on paper. And I remember the, the editor said like, where are you in this? Like, you know, where's the personal connection? People want to connect with you. And I was like, no, they don't want to know like everything that happened in my childhood. That's just not relevant. And, and so it was trying to walk that, you know, and you're right. Like sometimes you write, I don't know about you, but I'll write something. And then I'm like, I need to write it because apparently it needs to come out, but then I just delete it because it has no place in, in the actual story that I'm telling, but I needed to kind of get it out of the way before I could craft the story that really I wanted to tell. And so, so I really, I, I felt that balance in, in your book. And, and I kind of, I know exactly what you mean when you read something or you feel that twin that cringe, like, "Mm," and then you feel really uncomfortable, like, well, I really, that was, that was, it went too far, you know? And so the other thing I really appreciated about uh, Mary Jane Wilde was how you weave the natural world into your writing. And, you know, it's set in Castle Valley, which is where you live. And I'm curious, what's special for you about this place?
1: i think that um, what's special for me is you know the landscape itself and the how close we are to the to wild nature but i think that you know that's not unique i think that anytime humans get to put themselves in a situation uh, you know where there's you know wildness around that it, it is special because you know we're so now, programmed in the last 10,000 years to be you know, part of a civilized society. Um, and it's special to me because I think anytime we're exposed to wildness, it's that connection to our evolution, where we came from. And I think we are not, we have not programmed ourselves away from our evolution. And when we, when we reset ourselves in those evolutionary landscapes, places that have not been significantly changed. I think we feel something. I think something happens. I think um, we're reminded at a cellular level of where we came from and what works and how we survived all these years. Um, I I think that's it. And, you know, your question's a good one because I feel like it's um, sort of the question I've been asking all along. I think I wrote in the book about... Uh, a mentor of mine, the writer uh, William Kittredge, who told me in a workshop, told his students, he said, My job as the instructor is to help you all find the one story you'll tell over and over again the rest of your life. And I thought, Well, that's boring, one story. But then I realized now, looking back, that that's pretty much what I've done. And that's, that story is the one that you just kind of tapped into, which is you know we've lived in these bodies these same bodies since the pleistocene and yet we're trying to make them work in a world that's vastly different than that for which we were designed by evolution and that may have something to do with our problems
0: oh i completely agree with you it's it's interesting because i've talked about this a few times and and it's one of the things that i connected with in in the book is i think that our cultural evolution has been so rapid and we have succeeded as a species to modify uh, the landscape and the environment um, in such a, a significant way, but, but that we are mismatched now. We've created a, an environment we don't fit into properly. And I think all of the aggression, the hostility, the, all of the, the so, sort of social problems that we see, I think are a reflection of our mismatch with the world we've created and the world we actually are made to live in. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I also observe that there are many people that are disconnected from that, that um, sort of, there's this, you know, disconnect for them uh, where they're not recognizing that their unease, their anxiety, their inability to sleep, their stress level, their, um, disease physically in, in all of the health problems that people experience they they have no understanding that this is so maybe intimately connected to the fact that they we're living in a way that we're not made to live um, right. and 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 so for those of us who know um books like Mary Jane Wilde really kind of grab us and and we can relate So in some sense, it speaks to people who are already, you know, of that philosophy. But I think it has the potential to shift or shape, you know, how somebody else might view um, their experience as a human (laughs) um, in this world. You know, I guess you have had so many experiences um, and you're so connected to the natural world Um, not just through your writing, but through your living. And I'm wondering, you know, especially when it comes to other species, other animals, is there any particular encounter that you have had that really stands out for you that was sort of either really impactful and changed the way you thought about something or that's unforgettable for you?
1: You know, funny you should bring that up because... um... My new book, which I'm working on, in, in fact, you, as a writer, you know this to be true, that by the time your book actually hits the shelf, um, you've sort of moved on and that's, my, that's certainly my case. But what I finally decided to do is after 15 years of um, making notes about encounters that I've had with dragonflies, I've decided to turn that into a book. Not I haven't just recently decided, but i'm I'm on a late draft, I hope one of the final drafts but um yeah, for fifteen years since I had a dream about a dragonfly, I've encountered them in sort of magical ways. And I say magical because I must have encountered them before the dream, but not in the way that they've um approached me now, so this book is um details those encounters from a couple of different dimensions from like the natural history. they are an amazing creature and I'm sure that you know this as well as anyone that any natural wild creature that you start to look at carefully, you realize there's a lot of amazing things going on. um, Many of which we have no way to really document or prove. There's the, there's the natural history. um, There's the actual encounter, what What are the um, different circumstances that led to this encounter. And then there's the sort of mythological or um, archetypal aspect of the encounter. And what I've determined after writing this so much and so for so many months and for in so many different ways is that what I once thought were sort of two worlds, This this world that we see and touch and hear and smell, Um, and can document and measure and weigh and even sell if we need to. There's the other world of the sort of inner, more unconscious world that Carl Jung refers to, and that passing between them is optional, sort of. Uh, We dream and that we pass between those two worlds. But I always think that it's one world, that it's just one major world. It's one world with more dimensions than we've been led to believe there are. So, yeah, dragonflies have been a major um, sort of guide into the question that you've just asked. Um, But I think uh, the way I feel about dragonflies and the way they've grabbed my attention and my obsession applies to any, any creature, any wild animal.
0: It's funny because dragonflies are one of my favorite um, species. So we're going to have to have you back on uh, to talk about that book once it comes out. But it's interesting that you brought up, you know, how it grabbed you in a dream, because I mean, most of my dreams, and I remember many of them always have animals in them. I've had mountain lions. I've had um, jaguars. I've had bears, snakes, spiders, ticks. I mean, bats, there was bats in my dream just a week ago. I mean, they were pooping on me. So I'm not entirely sure how I feel about that, but, you know, I, and, and like, they've been such interesting dreams and I never thought about, you know, how they, I mean, I always think about, you know, the meaning of dreams and I pay attention to dreams, but I never thought about, oh, is this, um, You know, is there something here for me to look at in terms of, you know, that I I feel grabbed by and I want to focus on um, to that extent, you know, but something that I I did really like about what I read was, um, you said, whenever I thought I was stuck and might need to turn back, I found an animal track to follow, deer, coyotes, the occasional bobcat, And that the animals never led you astray, that if you if you followed how they moved through this the space, uh, you would almost certainly end up okay. And, you know, I follow uh, rules of animals in other areas of life, which has been sort of the foundation of, of many of my books. And I'm wondering if there's any particular animal lessons you've learned along the way other than follow the track thank
1: you for bringing that up because um first of all it was really true where i was there's you know there's no real trail and there's no real map and you just kind of go following the landscape and it was literally knowing that if there were was a set of more than one set of tracks it probably went in a way that worked but I never had put the two together that there's the, that there's that and then there's the metaphor of that also until you just brought it up, which I think is fascinating. And I feel like with dragonflies, for instance, um, well, there's that great um, phrase of uh, Mary Oliver in her poem, Granite, where she said, she wrote, I'll, I might be paraphrasing, I hope not, she wrote, the dragonfly lives its life without one error. And I think every wild creature does. And I feel like what you just asked me is that knowledge of of knowing that is how we maybe can see ourselves too, back to the evolutionary body, is that there is a way that we once lived without one error. And that's why I was able to follow those animals because I trusted that they had not jumped off a cliff at the end of that trail, for instance. I think that's, I think that's the main thing. It's a, it's a real general answer to your question, but if it's a wild organism, there's something for us to know about perfection and about that. There's a reason that it has survived for this long and the closer we get to understanding what that is, the better off we'll be too.
0: I, I agree. And I and, yeah, you know, I think circling back to something we were saying a bit earlier in the conversation is that I think because we've been able to modify the environment so successfully, we have escaped the consequences of our errors. For yeah, now, like,
1: for I, now, I for that. now. It, how many errors have we made? Like 10,000, you know, I right. think of the big ones. Yeah. And we're all just now in a state of, um damage control you know where we've done this we've done so much and now we're going to do this and what i mean i i don't know if you if you've read um elizabeth colbert's new book about the the white sky um where it's about um engineering a solution to climate mm-hmm. um so yeah we can we can throw all these chemicals into the sky to stop warming but, oh, unfortunately, it may turn the sky white, for instance, you know, right. so it's all about damage control. It's about we've made these mistakes. Um, there's no going back. It's all about kind of trying to fix. In a way that is least damaging, something that we destroyed already. Right.
0: I do want to talk about kind of what you've been seeing where you live and in other places, you know, speaking of damage control you're pretty active, you know, conservation. And, um, also, uh, you know, I know with your, with your wife, um, Terry, and you talk about this in the book in terms of, you know, uh, advocating for conservation and, and concerned about climate change. What are some of the challenges you see happening right there where you are?
1: Mainly, you know, temperature rise. I, th- I don't know if it's actually been measured, but I'm sure the average high temperature is higher than it's been probably in history, at least in human history. Drought, we're worried about. Uh, the Colorado River right now, which should be coming up because of snowmelt from Colorado, is still well below. We have what we call the Nine Mile Rock, which we drive by between here and Moab. And you can measure sort of where the river is by that rock, And right now, there's probably five feet of beach between the rock and the edge of the river, where in May a few years ago, I'd say five years ago, the rock completely disappeared, not even a riffle. the water was so deep over it. And um I imagine it'll come up a little maybe to the base of the rock, but i I would be very surprised and happy if it actually covered the rock which seems impossible so we've we've sort of become already in a short period of time more comfortable with the fact that that river is just never going to flow like it has in our lifetime there's that last year there was a huge fire here um in june which seemed early It was right over the mountain from us. And, you know, we were worried that if the wind shifted, it would come down into this valley. Um, The smoke certainly did. And it hung around for, I think it burned for a month. And then the rains came and flooded. And um, I saw this video that I cannot get out of my mind. Um, Somebody had the courage or stupidity to stand on this bridge during a flash flood and film this flood of water that had come down through the area that had been burned and it was like oil this river of oil it was but except for that it had rocks and twigs and trees and bushes just flowing down underneath this bridge and it was just this thick ashy mud it was like something from the depths of hell there's that and, and there's just I mean, it just seems like these the plants, the desert plants, which we, we've come to depend on last year, just a lot. A lot of them just didn't show up. And I think these plants are so finely evolved to to really respond to the perfect amount of moisture before they're going to like waste their energy and bloom that that they can lie dormant. And that's what I'm hoping they're doing. Yeah, so it's it's just that there's just this power of dryness. Yeah. Um, I There's a, cu- a couple different walks I take frequently, and I hadn't been on one for a month or so, and I really got the sense of that there are these, in this certain grove of junipers, that they just have a different, um, more dull um, green color. Like there's, there's just stressed. I think everything is stressed. Yeah. And I think people are all stressed as a result. Um, when we were saying the other day, it's like there's a, a new sort of ether surrounding us, which is, um, a, it's frightening and yet it's just everywhere now. So we've become sort of immune to it, not immune to yeah. it in the sense that we don't think it's there, but we've adjusted somehow. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I can't really explain it, but the the world has changed in the last few years, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's, you know, like I feel like in some places many of us can adjust because we still turn on our faucet and water comes out. Right. And right. And and I think about all the other animals that, you know, the things that they rely on are disappearing. Um, the water is drying up in places that they need it because they tend to follow, you know, they've been following the same path to water for thousands of years and now suddenly it's gone or they have to go farther. Um, and, and they can't, they can't make it. Some just can't make it. And, you know, I remember, gosh, I was in California. It was 2018, but I don't know. It was, it was 110 and you know, it was hotter than it had been in that area. And I will never forget, I saw in a um, birdbath, a hawk and a passerine bird together. The hawk was panting. The passerine bird was panting. I don't remember what kind it was. And they were just like so desperate that, that this truce of, you know, I, I'm not interested in eating you. I'm just, I'm hot and I, I need to get water. And there was water in the bird bath, and they were just together, um, you know, just trying to survive. Um,
1: Yeah.
0: And um, I think about that with fire. There was a story I read somewhere, I you know, and I don't know if it was true, but uh, or if it was anecdotal, but that a fire was raging through a forest, and all different species collected in this person's on this person's land at the edge of the forest, out of the fire, they were everything from predators to prey all together just trying to escape the fire
1: yeah i've heard stories like that too have you i believe it yeah not only around fire but around earthquake i think during the tsunami all those years ago there was a there was a story about all the different animals that had moved to high ground yeah um, and were like just existing temporarily together yeah, yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I have a special thing with coyotes, and and you do talk about um coyote in in Mary Jane Wild, but I remember you know even I mean I study prairie dogs and coyotes regularly eat um prairie dogs and and if if anybody's ever watched nature documentaries, they they see that you know clip where the lion is resting and the antelope are just relaxed because they seem to know the lion's not hunting them today. And I remember, you know, I have this very special or strange, who knows, um, interaction with all canids of, of all species, coyotes and domestic dogs alike. But I would have these coyotes always come and and play tricks on me and and steal my stuff and sit behind me Whoa. when I, I didn't even know they were there. Whoa. I'm like the observer animal behaviorist. And there's a coyote directly behind me and i'm completely oblivious for you know like 30 minutes um, um but i'll never forget one day this coyote just came and laid down under the tree and after about 20 minutes the prey dogs went about their business um and and, and i was studying predation and it was it took a nap for like four hours <laughs> and i i called my advisor and i was like I, what do i call this event what is it it's i mean there's a predator present but nobody cared. Everybody, you know. Every now and then, the coyote would lift his head up, and the prairie dogs would kind of, "Oh, what's happening? Oh, okay, it's back to sleep. No worries. We can go about our business." And you wrote about coyotes from a very different perspective in Mary Jane Wild, um, and and a and a shamanistic journey. um Can you share a little bit about the significance of that for you?
1: Yeah. Um... I don't know what motivated me. Oh, there's a, there's a woman in, um, she's, she's passed. Um, may she rest in peace. Adele Alsop was sort of the kind of the witch of castle Valley. And I say that in the most positive terms. And, um, she's a a very committed shaman and has had all kinds of training, but has a deep, um, I think, Connection that goes beyond, way beyond, and way deeper than her training. And she got me interested in shamanism. And I felt like I wasn't sure what was really happening. But when it came to these journeys, I felt like something was going on. And even if it was 100% imagination, I still feel that that's totally valid. I think something is going on. I think our imagination is rooted at somewhere much deeper than ourselves, for instance. So, yeah, there's that. And then I took some training with, um, a woman in, in Maine and she guided me into this, um, you know, this animal helper this coyote and it all, all of this took place right in my neighborhood here. And so this landscape, which had been very physical and mappable and documentable, um, became sort of a shamanic landscape at the same time and yeah there's a there's a cave that I followed this coyote into um and that's where he would advise me that we would talk and um that cave is a real cave it was it's gone now it's kind of washed away and it never was literally a cave where we could do that but it became shamanically one And, you know, I feel like that's, again, back to that one world, my world has just expanded to include that. And I feel fine about it. I feel justified because going back as far as humans were humans, this was part of their life. This was a piece of it. And just because we've answered so many of the questions that we thought needed answering that, that, that does not change that. So, yeah, coyote would um, advise me in, in these caves. And, um, yeah, it was, it's, it, was a, it was a big part of my life for a long time. And I feel like it's if, I mean, I tell my students, I, said that, I say to them, you know, you can believe what I'm telling you or not. You can believe that this really happens or, it do, or you cannot believe that it doesn't. But regardless, you have to th- think that something actually is going on. We may not be able to describe exactly what it is. And oh, by the way, if you expand your world to include these kinds of things, it will be much more interesting life. I guarantee it. And so they kind of begin to trust me a little bit when I tell them that.
0: Well, you know, it's funny as a scientist, right? Um, many, I observe, not just scientists, but lots of people, you know, it's got to be quantifiable, verifiable, measurable, and, and and repeatable in some way to be real. Yeah. And you know and i think that 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 there's something uh, sure if you want to publish a scientific paper that is absolutely accurate but as a way of approaching how you live your life that might be quite boring
1: yeah <laughs> well, also um one thing i i think i brought it up in the book cuz i i think about it a lot is this idea of an enchanted or a disenchanted world. And the disenchanted world may maybe that really doesn't exist, but we've disenchanted our world when we commodified nature, when we decided that a tree was more valuable for its bored feet than for the spirits that lived in it. Yeah. So and then if you think about that that if the world was disenchanted when we commodified nature. Um, and when we started using uh, the natural resources and buying and selling them, then that 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 includes carbon. And carbon has created a situation which there's no going back from um climate change, the burning of carbon. And if carbon is directly related to the disenchantment of the world, then I, I don't care what kind of scientist you are. You have to like think about the possibility. That if disenchantment led us to this problem that we have, then reenchantment might just might maybe have something to do with the solution. Right. So what we got to lose?
0: Yeah. we yeah. have,
1: we don't have, it's not like we know the ant- this is when the cats go. <laughs> we don't have the an- the the answers yeah. it with within the, the capacity of knowledge that we've have so far. So what yeah. are we going to do?
0: Well, and it's interesting because that speaks directly to sort of the mission or goal of this podcast, right? Is to reconnect people with nature to live better lives. And it's sort of that re-enchantment. I mean, I, I sit around and I talk to all kinds of animals all the time. And, you know, I, I feel like all animals can sense whether you're a good person or not a good yeah. person, what your intention is. In a space and as and, and I'm at the same time, I'm very respectful of, you know, personal space of other species. I don't really kind of run up on them and try to interact with them in the way in any particular way. I just sort of allow the interaction to unfold, yeah. um, you know, I well, mean, go back
1: to that, let's go back to your your experience where you're a scientist observing. And you see the coyote and you see the prairie dog and you realize that something is going on where, and and what is going on is a piece of communication, perhaps that we don't know how to interpret, Correct. you know, maybe, I mean, it's, uh, well, we, we love prairie dogs too. And the communication, you watch them and, and it's, it's like, there's a system of how they protect each other. And I mean, it's fascinating and you could spend hours with it. But maybe they're not just like seeing a coyote and and like telling the rest of their um, group that there's a coyote there. So be careful. Maybe there's another whole dimension of information that's passing. You know, I go back to um, I helped a photographer years ago with a film about killer whales. And, you know, I always heard about echolocation and the way we described it or I described it to myself was that this whale would send out a signal and it would hit something and it would bounce back to him or her. And it would like say, Oh, there's something out there. But it turns out it's like so many more dimensions than that. That this, this, this signal that goes out comes back with like a cat scan of what it's, what it's encountered. It's, it knows everything about it. So you start to think about that and the amount of, even knowledge that our ancient ancestors had um, where they were tapped into these different dimensions is the possibility is so astounding. And how do we, how do we regain some of that? I think the first step is we have to believe it's
0: possible, right? There's, isn't there this quote, like, there are, there are more things. It's like Horatio. There's some quote. I can't, uh, then you can imagine, uh, I forget, uh, you know, I'm going to have to look it up cause it's going to bother me. I kind uh,
1: of, I think I'm familiar with what you're saying is there's, there's, there's a million times the things we don't know than what we know or something like
0: that. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have to, I have to see if I can find it really quickly. Oh yeah. Um, there are more things in heaven and earth Horatio than are dreamt of in your philosophy that's the quote Um, and and I think about that and I for as long as I remember I've talked to to animals and you know I had a I've argued with them as well I had an argument with a seagull recently (laughs) and you know in the sense that uh, I it was doing what seagulls do which is if they can just steal some food that's a that's an easy way to make a living, and some are really good at it, and it it hovered and landed, and and it, I was like, no. Plus, it was French fries, and that's garbage food. So I'm eating yeah. garbage food, but you have to be a proper seagull and get proper food. And this seagull, I, I swear, it, it glared at me. It complained. Ah! <laughs> And then it flew off and it sat and stared for you know, at least 20 minutes. And then it, it went off. And uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm also a person who, you know, we've got a, a spider named Leslie. I didn't want to throw it out because it was too cold out. So, uh, and I said, okay, you can be here. There's just boundaries. You don't bite and you don't climb into the bed. These are the, yeah. these are the boundaries, right? And sure enough, Leslie was on the bed. So I caught Leslie, <laughs> put her back on the wall. I was like, no, 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 Leslie. You look, we have to coexist. We can cooperate, right? You you uh, can be inside and be warm and 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 hang out, but there's no climbing in the bed. That's just a no.
1: Yeah. And
0: you know, and so far she's not come back onto the bed. But you know, I, I and and I don't know that. It understands anything, but I have always done this, and just automatically assumed that you understand exactly what I'm talking about and and you know that we're yeah. communicating in some way. I know that spiders can hear from across the room. They can hear you. So I don't think that they understand English, but I think there's an energy that is picked up on of uh, intention and you know, and I think that that happens when you're out walking in nature, and you're walking um, on on your walkabouts. Uh, whether you see something or you don't, and how it reacts to your presence, um, yeah, I, I think has everything to do with how present you are in 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 the space and what you mm-hmm. the energy you're coming to the landscape with. I don't know. Yep. Do you, do you would you agree with that?
1: Yeah. Well, don't they say, and I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but that the first people who meditated were hunters waiting for game, that they knew that if they could empty their mind, that the animals would come closer to them. And a a good friend of mine, Jack Turner in Jackson Hole, um, he believes that during meditation walks, animals don't disappear they stay close because that we give something off by our thinking by our just our presence and if we can minimize that so there is something that's going on i mean the quantum physicists might have more answers to it but i think that, that there is something real to that um there's yeah they get a sense i mean our animals our cats and our dogs certainly can feel our energy whether it's good or angry or bad or loving and they respond accordingly i believe so
0: yeah well i have one one more coyote story before i move on to talk about wilderness which you wrote about a lot in in mary um mary jane wild so i i I, this idea of emptying you know so when i would be watching prairie dogs i just was sometimes you know they nap you nap the prairie dogs go kind of quiet around midday. They spend more time in the burrow when it's hot. And I was just kind of there in this field. And all of a sudden I see a coyote. It's always a coyote, me and my coyotes. Um, you know, just from the forest edge coming across the clearing. And it was a female and she was headed straight for me, like right for me. And I'm like, doesn't she see me? Like, how does she not know that I'm he- here? And she passed, just as she passed maybe 30 yards in front of me, she saw me. And it the look on her face was like, oh, I know people can't see it. You can, going, oh. And then she, you know how when you stumble on a sidewalk, you would look angrily at the sidewalk, like it was yeah. the sidewalk's fault she looked back at me like, I can't believe you did that to me. And, (laughs) you know, and I was just like, I thought it was hilarious, you know, but I also felt bad because I know how it feels to be startled unexpectedly, but she was so in her, whatever she was in. Yeah. And I was just uh, occupying some space in a very, you know, I, I found that the more I sat, and watched and was just there all the other animals around me would i it was like i was invisible and and then when they actually saw me it happened with some four elk as well when they actually saw me they were sort of startled that i was there so i thought about that when you talked about how hunters thought if they emptied their mind the animals would come closer Um, yeah yeah well
1: and aren't we fortunate to have some little glimmer of our own experience to support that idea.
0: You yeah, know? yeah. And
1: and once it once that it's un, unmistakable, then you realize how much it really happens all the time. You know.
0: Yeah, yeah. Has, has it happened for you?
1: Um. You know, I get a strong sense of um when I'm. A, we have a lot of deer here, for instance. And I mean, I can't, I can't really verify this, but I really get a sense of if I'm somehow vulnerable, if I can make myself vulnerable or think about love as opposed to fear or separation. You know, if if I feel like I'm this person that's just out here different and I want to observe these creatures, I think that's a separation as opposed to you know, how how can I like feel some kind of love inside of me or some kind of connection? And does that really impact them? I'm not sure if it does or not. Um, But no, and, but, you know, but with dragonflies too, and I, I, again, I, I think a lot of it is about the different qualities of attention. Um, That what kind of attention are you paying And is it like a, is it like a a definite difference? Is it like an observation or I think maybe it's the difference between what just observation, which is, you know, this separation versus attention, which is, I think this multidimensional concept of trying to like absorb everything that's happening. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I, I i don't think I can re- I can say that dragonflies have appeared to me in ways um like a hundred times more frequently after that dream than they did before, and yeah. what that all about it's I don't think that's about there are more dragonflies around.
0: No. I think it's about
1: my attention, the quality of my attention,
0: yeah, I love that well, you know, I kind of want to switch gears a tiny bit, not really. I mean it's all related, it's all connected but you spend a good portion of the book um, talking about the concept of wilderness um, and, or the experience of wilderness and, you know, and wilderness has a historically problematic role uh, in the United States as a tool of colonialism. And it's kind of, you know, the white European colonizers, romantic concept, And very intimately linked to the removal of indigenous people from lands that are are rightfully theirs to make spaces more wild and natural, quote, natural. How do you reconcile the sort of racist attitudes that are rooted in conservation in the United States um, and the concept of wilderness with, with how you experience nature? Yeah.
1: That's a really good question, um, and I think a lot of why I don't think enough about that it's my kind of white privilege guilt, because I feel like I don't know. It's one thing about you know colonization, and I mean you start to read about. I mean I've just been reading about the Enlightenment, the period of you know the late 18th century, early 19th century. Where people like Kant determined that any um, any p- type of person who didn't what did it, what did he say who did not reason or act like Caucasians was somehow less was like it was a it was a, a lesser status it was and that was the beginning of institutionalized racism. Um, so I think all about all that, I think about me being a privileged white guy. Um, I feel like there's a lot of reparations that need to be done. And I, I think I'm, I brought that up in the book about that cartoon that was obsessing me about the people on the crates, about mm-hmm. how the equality is different than equity. Yeah. And how we how we create equity these days. I mean, I loved how Biden... It, it, the idea that when it came time for him to pick someone for the Supreme Court, equality would have been maybe what the Republicans wanted, which was let's look at all, let's look at all these different factors like we always have. Biden said in his mind, he didn't say it out loud. Maybe he did, but he said in his mind, look, that's always been what we've tried to do, and we've gotten more white guys than we should. And look, now we need. We need an African-American woman in that position. To me, that is equity. That is like, all right, I'm going to be very upfront about that. Yeah. That's equity. And, and I feel that way with, with my writing. I feel like, um, I don't, I, I mean, white guys have had so many opportunities as writers i mean look how i mean it's like if you go to a if you read the classic i mean you read white guys mainly yeah and so i feel like on one hand i want to get my stuff published if possible but on the other hand i think about what kind of space am i taking up that you know a young person of color might occupy if i wasn't here right i think about that
0: well, and and you know, so I think yeah, you tackle a lot of really difficult topics in um in the book and and how you're thinking about them. And I think that for me one of the things that I try to do is elevate anyone that's from a marginalized group as mm-hmm. much as possible and create those opportunities either through collaboration or through promotion or whatever and and also you know uncovering my own biases my own you know perspectives that I might not realize are influencing my decision making in any given moment I think that you know will when we think about wilderness I I, you know I guess I've taught this uh, I've thought about this a lot because I teach this in one of my courses it's that I I feel like the idea of wilderness is, aside from its history and its very colonial definition, it promotes sort of this idea that we're not part of nature, that we have to go somewhere out there and be alone in order to experience nature. And, And so I'm wondering if you think that the concept of wilderness actually creates more separation between ourselves and the natural world than connection.
1: Yeah. I think maybe politically you're right. Um, now that you're bringing this up about this book, again, I mentioned that I've sort of traveled a long way since that book. And now I remember there's a lot in there about bear ears. Yes.
0: That,
1: and, and um, you know, I worked for the Southern Utah wilderness Alliance for a while and, Terry's been a board member and we've cared about these issues for a long time, especially around Southern Utah. And for a long time, for me, it's always been about how we talk about wilderness in a way that will be more conducive to its protection. And um, it's always been, all right, at first it was um, these iconic, beautiful places that the early, the first wilderness areas that were um, created along with the Wilderness Act were um, mostly rock and ice, you know, high, beautiful peaks that no one had any other use for, for instance. Um, but then it's grown to more and more, to more be more ecologically bound. Like these places may not be that iconic, but look how important they are ecologically. So there was all that. And then there was this idea that came along, which was um, these places attract a certain part of the population who's willing to spend money on gear and um, travel to get there. So there's an economic aspect of it. And there were all those things in, involved with when, we were, when I was working at SUA, and we were convinced, and accurately so, that we are not going to get a new wilderness bill anytime soon. So there are other ways to do that, national monuments being one of them. So we were involved in, in the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, for di- in different capacities, but then along comes um, this idea that Canyonlands National Park was way too small. It started out to be over ten times as big as it ended up being, and then years and years went by, and all everybody got their say, and chunks got cut off here, and boundaries moved back inward there, and it became went from four point two million acres to 300 and something thousand, which it currently stands as. So there was a movement that we could at SUA accomplish our goals of protecting more wild places um, by being involved in this at greater Canyonlands idea, which was how do we expand Canyonlands? And there was a lot of different theories about it and a lot of different ways to go about it. And people at Department of Interior under Obama said Look, um, until you're all on the same page, meaning all the different conservation groups with different ideas about how to expand canyon lands, um, get on the same page and then come back with a proposal. And that's when, it, I, when I heard um, Diné people, Navajo people talk about the importance of this place, not only to them, but to many tribes throughout the region. It hit me and I get kind of chills thinking about it now because suddenly there's a whole other dimension involved and it's this this other other this this idea of other why this place is important to them and the way they were talking about it was so powerful because it wasn't just that these places are important to us but these places can be important to everyone and he basically challenging us white people to realize the importance of sacred places not just to us for now for our um our uh, our recreation and our, you know, solace or whatever. I mean, I'm sorry to ramble about this, but I went to a a meeting uh, years before it became Bear's Ears to talk about expanding canyonlands. It was a, a a press conference at the outdoor retailers conference that used to be held in Salt Lake, and the people on the panel were representatives of the outdoor industry, and you know, the guy who sold backpacks. Said, we got to have this new monument because we'll, there's so many opportunities for backpacking. And then there was a guy who sold rubber rafts who said, we got to have this monument because look at all these rivers that we can raft in. And the climber, the guy with the climbing equipment said, this, this is world class climbing at, 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 bears, at, at what would, would become Bears Hairs. And there was only one who said, these are traditionally sacred places. That not only need protection, but that we need to learn about that dimension. And, and I realized right then it was a whole new concept for me personally.
0: Yeah.
1: And um and then you start to see what we've done to people, what we how we've changed, how we've moved, how our, our culture has just overwhelmed everything. And again, it goes back to this bear's ears, I think is. A real great example of some kind of reparation yeah and 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 as a result i think we're all benefiting we're seeing the power of these places and hearing the stories and um the native people are being so open about sharing that with us and part of me is is going i can't believe what i miss being a white guy
0: well i'm thinking you know it's interesting because i i think a lot about you know the cultural connection to places and and the history of places and feeling that history. And I think that contemporary sort of modern humans, um, their, their concept of history is really shallow. <laughs> you know, it's all oh, Roman history. And, you know, uh, you go see the Egyptian, you know, pyramids and that's history. But, but when you look at a landscape, you don't think about the history. And, right. and I do. Um, and so so I really enjoyed that part of the book. Um, I know that you're busy, and, and there's so much I could talk to you for hours. And so I, I hope I'll get to have you on uh, to talk about dragonflies. But I, I'm curious, you know, you know, how would you encourage? Because you and I have very similar sort of um, mindset, experience, uh, perspective uh, of how we connect with nature and and understanding that it's integral. Um, you know, even maybe at a uh, uh, you know, as a way of inner exploration, and he wrote about this. You know, is to to spend time in the outer, um, you know, natural world. How would you encourage others who maybe you know a walkabout for four days with just a map is too much, uh, <laughs> you know, or is too intimidating? How would you encourage others to experience a little bit more of this on a daily basis?
1: Good question. I think the 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 most simple, and I'll, maybe the most effective is to just consciously just say to yourself, you know, tomorrow, I'm going to take a walk. And I'm going to go I'm going to wander. And wandering to me is like moving through the landscape without any goal or intention. And, you know, empty your mind and just go wandering. And then when you get back, pay attention to what attracts your attention about what you experienced. And I think that there's messages there. There's something going on there. And if you start to pursue some of that, you'll find that there's a, it's like a door to a room you never knew existed that you can walk through anytime you want.
0: And I love that. And what I love, especially about it is it didn't require any special equipment There were no fees. It's fully accessible to everyone everywhere. For free. Yeah. So where can people pick up a copy of Mary Jane Wilde? Uh, two walks and a rant?
1: Well, it depends on where you are. I think um, I was surprised even uh, in a little bookstore in Cambridge, I saw a couple of copies of it. So it's there and you can order it. Um, you know, you can order it online too. But I think um I just love our local bookstore here. In fact, Andy who runs it was really helpful he wasn't he doesn't just sell books he helped me he read different drafts of this he helped me um move through different difficult passages um these these local independent bookstores are like dimensions of a of a community that are so important so okay you can get it about anywhere
0: great and how can folks keep up with you
1: um, that's a really good question, and it's been asked of me so much that <laughs> you, would be, you would be happy to know that I'm in the process of having a website put together. Okay. I've been told that. How many times have I been asked? Can we can we put this on your website? I said, yeah, you could, but it's not. I don't have one, <laughs> but I will. So. Okay.
0: Well, that's, that's good. <laughs> Because then folks can uh, find out when the Dragonfly book comes out next. Yeah.
1: And, you know, next time we talk about that book, then I'll be able to give you my website and you'll be able to tell everybody what it is so that that people will go to it.
0: That's great. Thank you, Brooke. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and I appreciate everything that you have shared uh, with me and the listeners.
1: Well, thank you so much. I think... um, I felt I forgot that we're like being recorded for your podcast because it's been like we've had a conversation over coffee, which I've just loved. And I hope that this is the first of many. So, and thank you for doing what you do. I think it's so important.
0: Thank you. Me too. One thing that stood out for me, and I hope stands out for you in this conversation, is that if you follow the animals, they will never lead you astray. As Brooke pointed out, this is literal. And as I've been suggesting for quite some time now, it's also metaphorical. It's true that when I'm out hiking or in the field, I have often found animal trails. These are well worn paths. They like to go on the path of least resistance, which is also why they like our man made trails and roads. In addition to that, paying attention to how animals move in the world and integrating some of their ways into our lives. I firmly believe reconnects us with ourselves, each other, and them. I think what Brooke and I discussed about how our cultural evolution, the world we've built, doesn't serve us and distances us from our true selves is a poignant statement. I also think this disconnect has permitted us to continue to perpetuate horrors on other species, entire systems, and ultimately on ourselves. Next week, I'm talking to two philosophers about their new book, Animal Crisis. They are urging us to rethink how we are in relationship to the natural world. Thanks for listening. Till next time.